0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This talk is titled, The Testimony of John. Actually, we're going to hear from two Johns, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist.
1: Remembering that the Gospel of John... According to the stated purpose of the author, is written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the testimony of John the Baptist that he gave concerning Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Son of God and that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw then how some of a couple of uh, the disciples of John were standing with him when he was pointing out Jesus as the Lamb of God, and those disciples followed after Jesus. And then after talking with Jesus for a while, they made up their own mind, and they went and talked one to his brother, another to a friend, and before you know it, there was a small cluster of men gathered around Jesus as his disciples. And then we saw that Jesus went with his disciples to the Galilean town of Cana to be at a wedding, for we don't really know who. There at that wedding, for we don't know who, his mother, at his mother's request, he performed what turned out to be the first sign of his ministry, a sign that pointed to who he was. And that sign was the turning of water into wine. Then after that, he went to Jerusalem at the Passover, and seeing that the temple was cluttered up with money changers, he swept the place out. and That created quite a stir. And when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, it says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, because he himself knew what was in man. That's chapter 2, verses 23-25. through 25. And In chapter 3, we see that Jesus met at, in the evening with a leader of the Jewish people a man named Nicodemus who came to him by night, partly possibly to be hid and partly because it was the most convenient time for anybody to meet with Jesus at that point. And Jesus gave him the stunning word that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to even see the kingdom of God, you are going to have to be born again. And that is not something that you can do. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit his spirit that is the work of the Spirit of God who just like the wind blows where it will you don't know where it comes from where it's going so it is with the Spirit of God so what must you do well as Moses lifted up his serpent his, the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will, may have eternal life and then we saw the last time that we were studying this, that very vital passage, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Now we are back again, coming full circle around to John the Baptist, John chapter 3 verse 22 after this Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside he had been in Jerusalem now they're going out into the region of Judea uh, that is away from Jerusalem out into the out into the sticks to uh, to do ministry work and he remained there with them and was baptizing Only the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was engaging in the practice of baptizing. But then he goes on to say, uh, specify in a later verse, it wasn't Jesus actually himself who was baptizing, it was his disciples who was doing the baptizing. But the main thing is they're carrying on a similar ministry to the Gospel of John. Now this shouldn't be too surprising to us, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we're told that the message of Jesus as he began to preach was identical to that of John, which is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's not, it shouldn't be surprising to us also that he also engaged in the practice of baptizing people. But, it says, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because the water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. We're not sure where any of these places are. History has swallowed them up. Um, but uh, we can make some guesses based on the uh, clues. It had to be a place where water was plentiful and there, there are some possibilities of all that. The main thing is that Jesus, was at, Jesus and his disciples were at one, in one area and John and his disciples were in another area But they were both essentially doing the same kind of thing, it seems like, at this point. And the Gospel writer tells us in verse 24, For John had not yet been put into prison. That's significant, because in terms of the time here that we are, because uh, Matthew and Mark are explicit that Jesus did not begin his great Galilean ministry until after the imprisonment of John. Uh, Luke isn't quite so specific, but still it seems pretty clear that uh, Jesus' great Galilean ministry was coming around this time that was after the imprisonment of John. But this is a time, this is a, a, a stretch of work that Jesus is doing in his early preaching, which is which is before John was put into prison by uh, Herod Antipas. So... Uh, that's that's an important thing. It is only John who tells us of these early days of Jesus' ministry. It's only John who tells us that Jesus had any kind of ministry early on in his ministry in the in the area of Judea. It's only John that tells us that Jesus was doing baptizing work. And it's only John that tells us that Jesus is doing anything before he entered into his great Galilean ministry after the imprisonment of John. John was still active at this time. So, all of that is to set up this, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ but i have been sent before him the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete he must increase and i must decrease okay what's going on here verse 25 says a discussion arose between john's disciples some of some of john's disciples and a jew over purification we're not told who this Jew was, we're not told what party he's from. He could have been a Pharisee who came to fuss at them and said, Oh, you're not doing this right. Or he might have been an Essene. The Essene the Essenes are not mentioned in the New Testament. We found out about them when the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered. The Essenes were a group of people who uh they were a separatist group of Jews who lived off in the desert, and they thought Everything was corrupt, and they had to get away from it all until the judgment of after the judgment of God came, and there was a restoration of all things. But until then, one of the big things about the Essenes was purification, and they had lots of baptisms and washings and things like that. Uh, so it could have been this. In, either way, it, it seems that uh, somebody had to come out and argue with him, says you. I like what you're doing, but you're just doing it all wrong. And John's disciples were speaking up for him and all of this. So there's this kind of discussion. Now what's significant about this is not what their discussion was about. What's significant about this is that in the process of all of this, Jesus' name came up. And attention was called to him. And so John's disciples came to him, and they weren't worried about their argument with this Jew who was worried about all the purification rules they came up to him said, hey rabbi and by this by the way this is the only time somebody in the gospel of john is called rabbi besides jesus said rabbi he who was with you across the jordan you remember him who to whom you bore witness he's baptizing and but not only is he baptizing everybody's leaving us and going to him they're complaining they're they're worried they're worried for their master's reputation they're they're worried f- for their own future I mean you, you know, look what's happening to our school I mean this this is not what's supposed to be happening is it and John comes back and tells them this is exactly what is supposed to be happening this is what my role has been all along I was telling you this before you did listen to me right when I told you all of that that uh, when I bore witness about him, you did wit- bear witness that I, I said, I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He begins to tell them a parable based upon the Jewish wedding practices of the time. The bridegroom was a very important man. He was very significant for the wedding. He actually brought the bride to the bridegroom. but he didn't get to keep her. The bride goes to the bridegroom, not to the friend. What does the friend get to do? The friend gets to rejoice when the bridegroom shouts over his bride. And that's what John says. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He said, <laughs> "He said the bridegroom is shouting. And my joy is complete. I have fulfilled my role. That's what he tells his disciples. That's not what they expected to hear. That's not what they wanted to hear. But that's what he's telling them. He said, guys, I've done exactly what God sent me to do. You know what that means, don't you? The implication is there. You know what that means. That means... Well, he draws out the implication. He says it very, very clearly in verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. The word is must. The central, the verb in both of those is must. There is a necessity there. The plan of God is in operation. And the plan of God, the will of God, demands that I Get lower while he gets higher. I decrease. He must increase. It's one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. And it shows, it really does show the essence of the greatness, of what greatness is in the kingdom of God. And it is is—it is the passion that every believer and lover of Jesus Christ needs to have. He must increase. I must decrease. In John's case he would decrease to the point of death. His ministry would soon be over. His ministry would soon be imprisoned by an unrighteous king. But he's got to be satisfied with that so long as the sun may increase. Now at this point there's a shift in the passage. The original Greek does not have punctuation marks. We don't have quotation marks that tell us where John's quote begins and when it ends and so forth. This is a passage. What follows is a passage which it seems pretty clear to me is not the words of John the Baptist, although there are many commentators who have, uh, who have looked at it that way. But I don't believe that it's John who's saying this. I believe that it is the gospel writer who is writing this. And I think he's doing, right at this point, he's making a summary of this whole passage and everything that he's written, really from chapter 1 all the way here through this point in chapter 3. He's bringing it all together. Not giving us a synopsis of events, but giving us a synopsis of the theology. What is it that he wants us to hear that will reveal to us and point us to the fact that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing in him we may have life in his name he's going to say it he's going to spell it out very clearly right here and that's what makes this a crucial passage in the gospel verse 31 he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him let's draw out the passage the meaning of the theology of this passage that wraps up this whole section of scripture everything that we've studied up until this point, is wrapped up in this passage. So let's see how we can package it. So let's see how we can uh, express it. Let's give this passage right here the title, Jesus Above All. All right? Jesus Above All. He is above all because of His origin. He is above all because of His testimony. And He is above all because He is the Son of the Father. And therefore, because He is above all, Our relation to Him is absolutely crucial to our eternal destiny. Alright, let's draw this out. Jesus is above all because of His origin. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But He who comes from heaven is above all. There is a a belief that goes back... uh, In the Western world, it goes back to the uh, ancient philosophy of Stoicism, which was current in the Greek world in the days of John, that uh, human beings had an existence before their birth, that they existed with the one... uh, life principle and that their souls existed before they were born and their souls came into the world when they were born and then they lived out their lives and then after they died their their souls would return back into the oneness of, of soulishness and so forth. Well that doctrine has been picked up in various forms. By different sects, some of which uh, bear the name of Christian, and but it is not a Christian doctrine. There's nothing in the Bible about that, and no more than there is any doctrine of reincarnation or passage of the soul from one age to another. Listen, your soul did not exist until you were conceived. Your soul did not be, begin to exist before conception. Was did not was not created until the time of your conception. So do not be distracted by that. There is only one who has entered this world from a pre-existent state. There is only one man who has come into this world who lived before he was born. And that is Jesus, the Son of God. And here john speaks of once again as he did in chapter one of his pre-existence he is from heaven he comes from above and because he is from above he is above all because he he is from heaven therefore he is greater than the greatest of earth there is a an interesting way of phrasing this let, let me read you how a literal translation from the greek of this passage He who is of the earth is of the earth and speaks of the earth. When it says speaks of the earth, it's not talking about about the earth. speaks, you know, that's not the subject matter. That is the source and origin of his speech. He who is of the earth is of the earth. That is, he who is of the earth is earthly. He is earthbound. It's like when he says, that which, is born, what? that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. That which is of the flesh is, belongs to the flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. That which is of the earth is earth. That which is of heaven is heavenly. There is a philosophy that is strongly held, well, an overall philosophy and worldview strongly held in our present day of humanism. Humanism is quite proud of being of the earth. That is, is, it is materialistic. Nothing exists except matter. Well, the Bible is very clear. There is matter. It has a real existence. But there is an existence above matter, which comes from God. It It is above nature. It is supernatural there is spirit as well as there is matter and he who is from above has come into this world from above is greater than all because of his origin because he is from God because he is from heaven more unlike anybody else who has ever been a testimony to God in this world and second He is above all because of His testimony. He knows by experience, because He is from heaven, He knows by experience what no earthly person can know. It says He speaks what He has seen. He bears witness to what He has seen and heard. We have never seen or heard God. Jesus has seen and heard God in His existence before coming into this world. He was with God at the creation, in the superintendence of all of history, watching the fall of mankind, watching uh, superintending over all of the things, bringing forth the flood, bringing forth a promise after the flood, bringing forth the generations of mankind, bringing forth Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, bringing forth uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt, Through all of history, through all of time, he was with God. He has seen and heard, and he comes into this world now to bear witness to things that he has seen and heard, that he knows not because he thought it up, not because he philosophized about it, but because he knows it of experience. He knows what no earthly person can know. Moreover, coming into this world, he became a real man and divested himself of the prerogatives of deity in order to become a real man. And therefore, he became absolutely dependent upon his heavenly Father. And his Father rewarded his dependence by pouring out upon him, Verse, uh, as it says in verse 34, gave him the Spirit without measure. Gave him the Spirit without measure. To the prophets, the Spirit came upon the prophets, but the Spirit was measured out to the prophets, not to Jesus. Now, these words—some have looked at these words and think, uh, believe that it has to do with uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit to believers. But no, believers are not in this part of this verse. Believers are not the target of what he's being talking about here says, He whom the Father has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The He that it's referring to is not the, uh, is not the Son, it is the Father who gives to the Son the Spirit without measure. It is because the Son of God has the Spirit without measure that later on the Son of God can give the promise of giving the Holy Spirit to those who follow Him. But we go on. He he is above all because of his testimony, because he, know, he testifies to things no earthly person can know, but he knows by experience. God has given him his spirit without measure, and therefore unbelief makes no sense. Look at how incredulous John is as he writes this. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now that no one is not an absolute... No one, because in the very next verse he talks about those who do believe his testimony. What he's saying is that the whole tendency of the world, the default position of the world, is not to believe his testimony. They look straight at him. They see the signs that he performs. They hear the, the words beyond compare that he teaches. And they look and they, look, and they hear, and, they, and it doesn't matter to them. They, they, they don't see it. They, they don't believe it. it. It's meaningless to them. And so, it's just incredible. It's astonishing. Unbelief simply makes no sense in view of that. But his authority is not diminished by the unbelief of people. That's the key there. The fact that people don't believe in him does not change the fact that his authority and testimony is absolutely true. Therefore, when it says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, to set your seal on something, that means that you are putting it down, you are identifying it, you are making a legal claim on it. And what are you making the claim on? You're making the claim on this principle, that God is true. Now that's more than saying that God is faithful, although it does mean that. It's more than saying that God's word is true, although it does mean that. It means God is true. It is laying a claim on the reality of God that is brought to us through Jesus Christ. Now, whoever believes that, whoever believes his testimony, is not doing anything, anything absolutely remarkable. What's remarkable is that people don't believe it. It's not really remarkable that they do. Because all in the world that they're doing is believing the obvious. It's laying hold and acknowledging the obvious. That God is true. If every man is a liar, God is true. Third, Jesus is above all because of his origin, because of his testimony, and because he is the son of the Father. For he the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Now we're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But now we are told very, very explicitly something that we were also already told earlier uh, in chapter 1, and it, it is strongly implied, but now it is just laid out here explicitly. The Father loves the Son the gift of love that God has given to the world of His Son is predicated on the fact that He loves His Son. There is a love relationship between God the Father and God the Son. God the Son does not do things simply because He is slavishly obedient to the Father. He's going to be speaking later on about His love for the Father, but right now the significant thing is to see that the Father loves the Son... It is important because that's why Jesus is above all. The Father loves the Son, and the Father has entrusted authority to the Son. He has given all things into his hand. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, before his ascension, says to his disciples, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. This is John's way of stating that same thing, that same principle. Everything, all authority has been given into his hand. There is going to come a day, therefore, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is above all. The word that Paul uses in Colossians is he is preeminent. John says, John doesn't use the word preeminent. He, He draws it out in what the definition of preeminent is. He is above all. Therefore our relationship to Jesus, the Son of God, is absolutely crucial to our eternal destiny. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Period. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see the life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Period. As usual, John states a positive, and then he follows up with a negative. I'd like to, I'd like to, first expound on the positive, and uh, on the negative, and then the positive. Simply because I'd rather not end on the negative. There is a play between two words here, and if you're reading in the King James version, "Whoever believeth in the Son." hath eternal life. Whoever believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now if you're looking at that first believe, you notice that it's believeth in. If you're looking in this that second one, whoever believeth not the Son. It doesn't say whoever believeth not in the Son, whoever believeth not the Son. So let's look at that. It's a rejection of the testimony. Those are actually two different words. It's not the same word for belief. They're related. They have the same uh, core. And the same core uh, meaning is of being persuaded. There is persuasion at the core of all belief. But the one word, uh, the word for believe is to believe in. But the other word, is we don't have a verb for it. We have a noun, but we don't have a verb. We have the noun unbelief, but we do not have a verb. But if you did have, a, if we did have a verb, the verb would be to unbelieve, to unbelieve. Whoever unbelieves the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's, it's more than disbelief. Disbelief has reasons. Unbelief is a decision of the will. It is a refusal to believe. It is a rejection of faith. And therefore, the English Standard Version gives a very good and strong translation of it. Whoever does not obey the Son. Because it is about, whoever, it's about someone who refuses to come into submission of the One who is above all. If He is above all, then what is righteous is for us by faith to come into submission to Him and under His Lordship. But to refuse to do that is to put one under the wrath of God. Well, we're already under the wrath of God. But the wrath of God remains on Him, abides on Him. That is a present tense thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in karma? Do you believe in karma? Have you ever seen something bad happen to somebody who just did something bad and say, Ha, 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 that's karma. Is that what you think? If you are a Christian, you need to reject belief in karma. Karma is an impersonal principle of payback, and it operates automatically. A, it just the universe balancing itself out. Let me tell you something: there is no principle of there is no impersonal principle of thing of, of balancing out the universe. There is a moral law of cause and effect that is superintended by a personal God who hates sin and who hates evil, but who loves sinners. And in His loving kindness and long-suffering and in His mercy, He withholds His wrath, but make no mistake, God will destroy evil there will come a day in which evil will be destroyed forever. And if you're hanging on to it, you will be destroyed along with it. You hang on to it by rejecting the very one who could provide you with the mercy of God and eternal life. Whoever unbelieves the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him you have not seen his wrath yet it abides on you but you haven't seen his wrath his wrath will not be made known to you until the day of judgment that's when you will see his wrath you've never seen God upset he is withholding his wrath in this day if you see something disastrous happening to you after you have committed a sin and you feel that guilt and that in you and some calamity takes place, that is the chastening of God that is coming to you, which is designed to encourage you to repentance, just as much as when good comes to you, it encourages you to repentance. you haven't seen His wrath yet, and you don't want to, I urge you to listen to the word of promise in the first statement. He, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That means no longer the, does the wrath of God abide on, abide on you, but it means so much more. Because eternal life is the life that participates in that day that is to come when all of the evil will be done away with and you can actually experience the power of that life here and now by faith I pray that you will I pray that you'll be blessed until the next time we meet may the Lord bless you and be with you
0: just a footnote here I noted in my exposition of this passage how the author segued from the Baptist testimony into his own without making an identifiable break. A great many scholars use this as evidence that John intrudes often into the narrative, even presenting his own ideas as coming from the mouth of Jesus. The fact is, as noted by author Lydia McGrew in her book The Eye of the Beholder, this is quite literally the only place in John's gospel where the reader has any trouble discerning whether Jesus or the narrator is speaking. Quite the opposite is true. As McGrew notes, there are several places in the gospel, and we've already, we've already seen one in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, by the way quite several places in the gospel where the narrator explicitly distinguishes his own words from Jesus' words, and he does this despite the fact that he's giving what he considers to be the correct interpretation of what Jesus said. My point is that there's no ground for thinking that John has constructed a sock puppet Jesus, and there's every ground for believing that his recounting of Jesus' teaching is reliable. In our next episode, Jesus reveals some teachings, some profound truths to a very unlikely hearer. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.